Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you, and enjoy. Management of Chronic Insomnia. This is Dr. Alon Navidan, Professor of Neurology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and Director of the UCLA Sleep Disorder Center. The purpose of this podcast is to understand the approach and management to patients with chronic insomnia disorder. First, let's define insomnia. Insomnia is defined by the following criteria. Difficulties falling asleep for more than 30 minutes, difficulties maintaining sleep, or early morning awakening, generally about 30 minutes before the desired wake time, and it has to happen despite an adequate opportunity for sleep. Insomnia is also defined by the next day consequences, generally fatigue, impairment in daytime function, uh, difficulties concentrating, difficulties with memory, and also attributes related to social, vocational uh, dysfunction the following day, proneness to errors and accidents, as well as more um, generalized symptoms related to other systems like tension headaches, GI symptoms in response directly to the sleep loss. And most patients also have another issue, which is a, a concern or worry about the lack of sleep. We, we all know that the, the fundamental underlying pathophysiology of insomnia lays a disorder of hyperarousal, which can actually be measured physiologically by noticing that these patients are at risk for increased metabolic rate, cognitive hyperarousal, functional neuroanatomical changes that we can actually see based on uh, images related to uh, hyperactivity in the areas of the brain that control and facilitate wakefulness just before sleep. And this hyperarousal often keeps patients, say, awake and is really the underlying basis of some of the medications that we currently use to manage insomnia. Now, uh, the DSM-5 criteria for insomnia also includes other attributes related to frequency, more than three nights per week, and for more than three months. So there is a chronicity and a frequency criteria as well. Now, as, as you understand, when, when we see patients with insomnia, we have to also conceptualize that there is a fundamental issues that lead someone to migrate from having insomnia for a few nights to insomnia occurring more chronically. And we use a, a model that is called the Spillman 3P model that relies on three Ps, predisposing factors, precipitating factors, and perpetuating factors. 
The predisposing factors have to do with the physiologic and cognitive hyperarousal. Precipitating factors include lifetime events, stressful lifetime events that usually bring a patient beyond a threshold of insomnia. Take, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic. This is, in fact, one of the reasons why we're seeing more patients coming in complaining of insomnia, because they are definitely at risk for insomnia, but there is a stress, the anxiety, the, the wariness related to the pandemic that usually facilitates and predisposes patients to now have active insomnia disorder. And then insomnia gets perpetuated by certain um, sleep hygiene issues related to watching TV too late in bed, um, having alcohol as a, as a treatment for insomnia, and wariness about poor sleep the next, as a consequence the next day. So, for example, a lot of our patients, uh, what they do is in this current pandemic uh, time, they generally uh, watch the TV, listen to the news, just before going to bed, and that tends to accentuate and worsens their underlying insomnia. Now, I'd like to present to you Susie. Susie is a 45-year-old woman who presented to my clinic complaining of problems with sleep initiation and maintenance. She consumes alcohol to help her fall asleep and also watches TV before bedtime to help her relax. Now, the issue with Susie is that she has started to use a fluorazepam uh, about two or three nights per week. And now she also finds that she gets very tired uh, in uh, the next day, particularly when uh, waking up in the morning and feels unrefreshed. And what she does is she likes to take a two to four hour nap uh, around two or three until about five or six because she's so tired during the day. And she also makes up for lost sleep on the weekends to sort of balance things out. Now, you can already appreciate that um, in, in assessing Susie, we understand that there is an issue related to uh, a, a selection of a medication and also her uh, current schedule that is not really uh, conducive to sleep. One of the things that I generally recommend before doing anything as we assess patients for insomnia is have them complete a sleep diary or a sleep log. A sleep diary essentially is an um, ability to capture the patient's sleep-wake timing and get a sense of sleep duration, sleep regularity, and any sleep behavior during the day that might be impacting the patient's sleep at night. So, for example, if, if Susie is taking, taking two to four hours uh, naps in the middle of the day, that can certainly impair her ability to fall asleep during the night. And in fact, we often think of napping as snacking for someone who is trying to lose weight. That sleep that she takes in between her major sleep periods is in fact temporarily relieving her symptoms of sleepiness, but it's doing, uh, um, she, she is essentially creating a situation where she's making up for the loss of sleep, so her sleep drive at night is reduced. So as we're thinking, we're also 
trying to understand certain behavioral patterns that a patient may have adopted over the years leading to the presentation of insomnia. Now, she's also watching TV and that blue light from the television is very stimulating, particularly because it uh, prevents the release of melatonin from the circadian, having melatonin secreted in the brain and having it function to block the um, alertness signal from the circadian clock. So in the absence of melatonin or melatonin diminished release as, as a result of the abnormal light exposure from the television screen, computers, light from cell phones, iPads, that perpetuates her insomnia as well. Now, Susie also mentioned that she gained about 20 pounds over the last several months as she has been unable to work out during this current pandemic. All the gyms are closed and she essentially doesn't go outside as much as, much as she used to. She doesn't exercise as much and she has gained weight uh, about 20 pounds and now she's also snoring. Her physical exam demonstrates that she has reduced upper airway size. We use a malampati classification to grade the airway size and her malampati class is fairly narrow. It is four, which is really the most uh, obstructed upper airway size that one can appreciate. Her body mass index now is 37 kilograms per meter square, where a BMI, body mass index, over 27 generally puts people at risk for sleep disordered breathing. So as we ascertain the reasons why Susie cannot fall asleep, we can certainly think about issues related to abnormal light exposure during the daytime, during uh, just before bedtime, the excessive weariness. But as we're thinking about what, main, what is causing Susie to have such a hard time maintaining sleep, we can certainly understand the impact of uh, the underlying sleep apnea as a cause for sleep fragmentation. So I would also consider Susie for um, uh, evaluating her further using uh, sleep studies, either a diagnostic polysomnogram, which measures uh, brain waves, say breathing, uh, and also motor movements, uh, leg and um, arm movements. Occasionally, we also add some uh, extra uh, um, measurement of a uh, arm movement in case we consider a parasomnia. But for Susie, we're in many concern about sleep apnea. So for her, I would also consider the use of a home sleep apnea test, which is a, essentially a home test looking exclusively for sleep apnea. Now, before we begin thinking about managing Susie specifically, I just want to make sure that everyone understands that as you're seeing these patients, you have to ask some key questions. And I usually begin with, when did insomnia begin? For example, in this current pandemic, if a patient tells me that they've had insomnia now for years, but over the last few months and since the end of March, it's gotten worse, and I think it's related to uh, social and physical distancing and stress and anxiety, and if their finances, certainly there is a 
a timing criteria that can actually be very, very helpful diagnostically. Was there a specific trigger? What's the frequency? How many times per, per week? For example, if someone has insomnia every day, you would treat them very differently than someone who has insomnia uh, once or twice, say, uh, a week. Is it problems with uh, sleep initiation, sleep maintenance, or early morning awakening? Early morning awakening is, generally speaking, uh, related to depression. Middle of the night insomnia, generally related to either an underlying medical issue like uh, obstructive sleep apnea, pain, fibromyalgia, uh, periodic leg movements, uh, a full bladder. Uh, in patients with neurologic disease, we also think of uh, issues uh, concerning uh, spasticity in multiple sclerosis, nocturia and uh, Parkinsonism. Sleep initiation problems are generally related to stress, but can also be related to restless legs as well as hyperarousal, this cognitive hyperarousal that can also manifest as sleep maintenance insomnia. Now, specific to Susie, we may ask her, why are you seeking help now? I mean, you have had insomnia for two years, but why now? Why are you coming to see us in August instead of earlier in February when you notice that or in March, when you notice that the insomnia was getting worse. And generally speaking, it's related to um, issues concerning the patient's, say, life quality at a point in which they have to do something or else they may face uh, financial distress or it may manifest in more uh, difficulties with their uh, uh, relationships. And I also ask patients what what have you tried so far? So for example, many patients will tell me, oh yeah, doc, I've, I've tried a glass of wine or I found that a glass of wine was initially helpful, but now I have to use two or three glasses of wine before bedtime to help me fall asleep. And that talks to the fact that alcohol certainly has uh, not only tolerance, but uh, is a, a problem uh, because uh, you need uh, there is some habituation to it, and certainly a lot of patients try it and not knowing that it may have detrimental effects in terms of sleep architecture. What are the expectations for management? Does Susie want to use a behavioral therapy, or is she more interested in a pharmacologic treatment, or both? And I can tell you that when I ask these questions, uh, uh, specific to management and expectations, most patients would not want to use a drug therapy, or they may resort to using a drug therapy just to get them some help initially as they pursue more behavioral approaches. And the final question I like to ask is, how has insomnia affected you? Now, for a lot of patients, it's a, a related to um, being unable to fulfill a job requirement or having difficulties for, uh, with anxiety, with depression, and they get to a point where it's a, uh, having such a severe impact on quality of life that it, has, it does really require some therapy. Now, for Susie, the insomnia has gotten worse since March. She's uh, falling asleep during, she feels sleepy during the day as a result of the sleep deprivation. She's taking naps. She's feeling depressed and grog groggy, and probably that's the reason why she was placed on antidepressant. But as a first 
rule of thumb, what I would recommend here with Susie is that we might want to consider first, as a first-line therapy, is removing things that she should not be doing, like uh, watching TV late at night, um, perhaps transitioning uh, Susie off the fluorazepam and putting her on perhaps a cognitive and behavioral therapy for insomnia, which I'll go into more detail, or perhaps a drug that has a bit more data and safety for sleep onset and maintenance insomnia, and uh, also removing things that might worsen her insomnia by causing rebound, and drugs that can certainly worsen her sleep-disordered breathing, like alcohol that she uses to help her fall asleep, because we know that alcohol tends to um, uh, worsen sleep-disordered breathing and can uh, worsen the degree of sleep fragmentation. So as we begin addressing Susie's insomnia, we might want to try non-pharmacologic approaches, sleep hygiene education, cognitive and behavioral therapy, and then talk to her about some uh, ways in which the behavioral therapy can start gaining more presence in, in her ability to get some relief. And I'll tell you how we may go about doing this. So for example, if we think about transitioning Susie after fluorazepam, there are actually a number of uh, medications that might be helpful for her to help her fall asleep and maintain sleep. And the specific ones that we often like to uh, um, uh, consider uh, are drugs like asapiclone. Asapiclone can help patients fall asleep, maintain sleep. Uh, certainly the dose of this drug has to be adjusted for age as well as for gender. Usually lower doses like one milligram and two milligrams for sleep onset and sleep maintenance insomnia for women over age 18, three milligrams is reserved for male patients above age 18. Drugs like exenerolizolpidem, drugs like the dularexin antagonists, essentially drugs that bind any area of the brain that block wakefulness. And this is interesting because these are drugs that can actually prevent hyperarousal and prevent or help address pathophysiologically the core essence of insomnia, which relies and is a, related to hypervigilance and hyperarousal. And there are two drugs that might be considered with this particular mechanism, suvorexant and lamborexin. Both are dualorexin antagonists. And orexin, as you know, orexin or hypocretin, the terms are interchangeable, is a neurotransmitter that stabilizes wakefulness, promotes wakefulness uh, in a, um, all of us, really, but is a drug that is um, often a, um, uh, implicated, and, and the mechanism of action is really implicated in narcolepsy type 1, which is related to abnormalities of orexin and hypocretin uh, release due to damage or inflammation or an autoimmune destruction of the hypocretin neurons in the diencephalon. So the one key issue to consider in Suvorex and Lamborex is to never, ever, ever give it to patients with narcolepsy because you will make them 
even more narcoleptic. Certainly, that's, that's one consideration we all want to uh, uh, be aware of. Now, the benzodiazepine hypnotics, they all have unique mechanism of actions, but they're all very promiscuous. They bind all over the brain in areas that may promote dizziness, somnolence, anticholinergic side effects, fatigue, ataxia, anterograde amnesia, complex nocturnal behaviors like sleepwalking, sleep eating, and uh, certainly one has to be aware that these drugs might not be more specific in their underlying mechanism. Please note, however, that complex nocturnal behaviors are uh, common and can occur in any drug that is, is used uh, to improve patients, say, uh, insomnia. And hence, uh, medications are a temporary um, uh, 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 treatment option for patients with uh, chronic insomnia. But in my mind, as you think about really managing these patients holistically and, and really going after the underlying mechanism, there is no better data than cognitive and behavioral therapy. Let me spend the last five minutes or so on CBTI, cognitive and behavioral therapy. So you're probably all familiar with the basic framework of cognitive and behavioral therapy. Really, this is a behavioral treatment to change and improve the patient's um, um, behavioral patterns in relationship to an underlying um, medical or psychiatric condition like anxiety, depression. With insomnia, what we're really um, trying to, to um, help patients with is, is really fundamentally change uh, the way they sleep and really retrain them in a way to learn how to sleep again. And the core, topic, the, the core uh, treatment um, uh, elements specific to CBT specifics for CBT for insomnia, cognitive and behavioral for insomnia, are five. Let's start with stimulus control. Stimulus control allows patients to uh, get rid of associations or negative associations with um, uh, all kinds of uh, um, attributes that tend to perpetuate insomnia and are considered associated with uh, wakefulness. So one example of a stimulus control is the alarm clock or the digital clock in front of the patients. When they constantly look at the clock and know what time it is, and it is one, two, three in the morning, they haven't fallen asleep, they begin to subconsciously associate the, the clock with the insomnia and inability to fall asleep. So we want to remove those objects, those, uh, those specific uh, associative uh, uh, elements from the bedroom environment so the patient can have no stimulus and no uh, reason to really think and, and uh, be stimulated by uh, conditions or objects that can precipitate insomnia. Secondly, our relaxation techniques. With relaxation techniques, we're working on high physiologic, cognitive, or uh, uh, emotional hyperarousal uh, uh, techniques where uh, the patients learn to engage in deep breathing, mindfulness meditation to help 
improve their underlying hyperactivity, hyperarousal, and this can be done by yoga. It can also be done by deep breathing exercise. And it is very, very helpful to get to that, uh, 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 the patient's capacity to physiologically be prepared for sleep. And for most patients, we tell them to avoid anything that has to do with work uh, within two hours of bedtime. Next are the cognitive approaches or techniques where the patient learns about misconceptions related to sleep and insomnia. For example, with Susie, um, it's important to remind her that alcohol is not a drug that she can use, say, uh, before bedtime. It's not going to help. It's, it may help her relax, but it's not a pharmacologically safe drug for sleep induction and maintenance, certainly with its underlying uh, worsening uh, 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 physiologic response for sleep apnea. It's something we would certainly need to educate Susie about. Uh, sleep hygiene education are specific behaviors that undermine uh, good sleep quality. And um, certainly when the sleep hygiene education takes place, those specific behaviors become less, say, pronounced. So, for example, maintaining regular sleep-wake patterns, uh, eliminating alcohol, eliminating caffeine, and working on setting a regular sleep-wake patterns, eliminating the naps that uh, tend to perpetuate insomnia by um, uh, taking away the drive for sleep. So, certainly, that is something that a lot of patients have already done, by reading on the internet, but we have a success, much more success, when we provide patients a coach, a cognitive and behavioral coach, and we go over the do's and don'ts. The do's uh, usually relate to the dark, quiet, cool temperature in the bedroom, about 60, 65 degrees, avoidance of bright light, practicing relaxation routines, reducing time in bed, that's really critical. If the patient can't fall asleep within 15 or 20 minutes, they should get out of bed and, and uh, move to a different room in the house and read. But what they read is also important. They shouldn't be reading anything like a mystery novel or the Da Vinci Code. Something that is worthwhile is usually uh, something that doesn't interest them. If it's interesting and they keep reading about it, then they shouldn't be reading it. So, for example, I had a patient not too long ago who is a, uh, was a reading about uh, her psychiatric uh, practice. Whenever she had a patient with an underlying psychiatric condition, she would go and read about it uh, in the evening when she can, couldn't really fall asleep. And that is certainly not something I would recommend doing. You should uh, in, uh, encourage patients not to watch a clock, not to use stimulants during the day, particularly caffeine, nicotine, uh, certainly, we have patients who use caffeine tablets, uh, energy drinks. That that should be out of their um, uh, system. And really, if they need to use coffee, just to give them a, a little bit of alertness during the day. Um, one to two cups, not um, after 12 noon, uh, would be uh, my recommendation. But definitely, we want to also, with Susie, uh, work with her on finding out 
what is causing the sleep fragmentation. So after she goes through the sleep study, either if it's a polysomnogram, an in-lab sleep study, or home sleep apnea test, uh, be sure to treat her sleep apnea appropriately, effectively, and make sure that she's compliant with her treatment. That would also allow her to uh, lose weight, allow her to exercise more when she can, and uh, that can certainly help improve her overall health and improve the degree and the chronicity of her insomnia. Finally, light exposure. We already mentioned to you that uh, using uh, promoting uh, light uh, is important for certain circadian rhythm abnormalities, particularly in the morning for patients who can't fall asleep until much later. Uh, and it's even more important nowadays uh, in the midst of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So with that, I'd like to conclude that uh, insomnia disorder is certainly very important uh, uh, concerning, especially now in the current pandemic, many patients say are um, having more difficulties because of the sense of fear, anxiety of the unknown. But certainly, it's our opportunity to assess the patients more carefully. The one tool I recommend is a sleep diary or sleep log, which you can find on the internet. Uh, you just type in a sleep diary. PDF, and you'll be able to get some pretty good resources, particularly the one from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine is very helpful uh, and allows you to get a sense of the patient's sleep-wake patterns before they even see you in clinic. Be sure to uh, address uh, patients who have uh, potential uh, underlying uh, sleep disorders like sleep apnea, like restless legs, uh, separately because treating the underlying sleep disorder first can uh, certainly help her, their insomnia, similarly with pain, depression, anxiety. But some, nowadays we consider the treatment of insomnia really separately from the treatment of the underlying psychiatric or medical conditions, and there is now more evidence that they should be treated separately. I gave you some basic uh, outline of the particular pharmacotherapy that would be helpful for Susie, working on medications that are approved for sleep onset and sleep maintenance, together with cognitive and behavioral therapy for insomnia, whereas the cognitive and behavioral therapy has no side effects, really. It's just inconvenient, probably because of uh, time commitment and uh, commuting nowadays with uh, most uh, visits taking place by video, uh, we do have the capacity to provide cognitive and behavioral therapy through the video uh, telemedicine route. So with that, I'd like to conclude. Thank you for your time. And uh, just uh, to be sure that uh, I will uh, provide you with some uh, uh, resources. I'll uh, provide uh, specific references at the end of the podcast to provide everyone with additional uh, tools, educational tools to help your patients uh, with chronic insomnia. And with that, I'd like to conclude and thank you for your time. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. 
That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.